The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on appearance or height of stature. The Lord does not see as mortals see, for they look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. He is keeping the sheep. He sent and brought him in, and the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. This is the word of the Lord. Two hundred years after Joshua led the people across the Jordan into Canaan, they had forgotten how bad four hundred years under the Egyptian kings had been. Generations immediately after Joshua remembered. Now a new generation, after two hundred years, had forgotten. And they started demanding of God's High priest Samuel, we want a king. All the Canaanite tribes have kings. We want a king. And he said forcefully to them, you do not remember what kings do. They take. They take your sons. They take your daughters. They take your money. They take your vineyards. They take your olive groves. They take your grazing fields. They take your watering holes. They take. And the people said, but we want a king. And God said, let them have a king. I think he meant people get the kind of government they deserve. We all say we want Congress people who look at the whole country, but then we want ours to bring home the bacon. And in the city, we want counselors who will look at the whole city, but we want ours to focus on our neighborhood. We get the kind of government we deserve, but that's another sermon. (laughs) A good one, too, by the way. We get the kind of government we deserve. When we demand that we have people who look at the whole city or the whole country or the situation in the whole world, we'll have a different government, much better for all its people. Let them have what they ask for. Give them a king. And Samuel anointed Saul. The Bible says he was tall and good-looking. He felt unworthy to be king, and he functioned pretty well. And then one morning he woke up feeling deserving, and he became a lousy king. And we come to today's passage. The I am who I am, Eye Asher Eye, the one at the burning bush, said to Samuel, How much longer are you going to grieve over Saul? Now, this is not about a death, you understand. He's not saying quit grieving about your father, your mother, your child. This is about a mistake. Samuel, you made a mistake, you chose the wrong guy. Now, how long are you going to grieve about that? 
Eric Felton wrote a column the other day in the Wall Street Journal called Battered and Bruised, It's Better to Lose. He was talking about March Madness. Have you been watching all those basketball games? My brother and I email each other and we say, this is like the old Monopoly games we used to play. Sooner or later, all but one have to cry and go home. Last night, you had four teams thrilled to be in the final four. Two of them had to cry and go home. And tomorrow night, the last one will cry and go home. Just one gets to cut down the nets and have a party. All the rest have lost. Eric Felton in his column was saying, battered and bruised, it's better to lose. It's the way you deal with the hurts and the pains and the disappointments and the frustrations that come your way. He had a paragraph on Pat Conroy, the famed author who wrote of my losing season. That when he was a basketball player, he loved winning, but he learned more the year his team didn't win. He wrote of Frank Sinatra. Sinatra had a meteoric rise right at the beginning, and then his career almost died. Eric Felton says he really fell in love with Ava Gardner. He really loved her. And Ava Gardner had a thing for race car drivers and matadors, anyone within 100 miles, and it broke Frank's heart. Eric Felton says that Frank Sinatra did his greatest work after his heart was broken. He also wrote of Mac George Bundy. A few of you are old enough to remember Mac George Bundy with me. He was special advisor to President Kennedy and then to President Johnson. Scholars are saying now he probably had as much as anybody else to do with our getting into that war in Vietnam. Eric Felton says... The problem was Mac George Bundy had never lost anything in his life. He was a person of privilege. His family had money. He had tutors. He had Ivy League education. Every door he had walked up to had been open for him. He could not imagine ever failing. So he got us into a war. He was sure we would win, and we couldn't. He said, everybody loses sometime. It's how you grow from that experience. Lent is about hurts and pains and disappointments and frustrations and mistakes. And how does one come back after mistakes and hurts and pains and frustrations and disappointments? Number two. Rabbi Gunter Plaut says this passage is entirely theocentric. Theos in Greek, God-centered, God-centered. This whole passage is really about God. We may focus on Jesse. We may focus on the eight sons of Jesse. We may focus on Samuel. We may focus on David. It's really about God. The second point makes that very clear. Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I've already provided for myself a new king. They're not going to get what they deserve this time. They're going to get the one I send. And the one he had sent was David. And later for us Gentiles, the one he sent was a descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth. I've chosen my own. I'm sending him. 
Ruta Sepetis is a Ukrainian-American. I had to look up Ukraine myself. I knew it was a part of the old Soviet Union. I knew the Soviets, the communists, had taken it over, but wasn't sure exactly where it was. And there it was, right on the Black Sea, Turkey just to the south, Ukraine just above. Ukraine, in 1941, had fewer than 3 million people. Uh, it was generally the population of Oklahoma. Stalin was having to fight the Germans on his west front and for some idiotic reason decided to rush into Ukraine, rounding up men, women, and children and forcing them into work camps. Naruta wasn't old enough to be a part of that. Her father was a part of that. Her father survived that. And as she got born in the United States of America after he managed to get here after the war, she would ask her father from time to time stories about the homeland, and he never wanted to talk about that being rounded up and sent away. So after she was a college graduate and a writer, she decided to go to the Ukraine and ask others, were you living in 1941? What do you remember? What do you remember? Then she wrote a book about it, Between Shades of Gray. We often talk about black and white and the gray in between. She thinks they're even shades of gray, of right and wrong, of hurt and pain. In this novel, historical novel, that she wrote after interviewing as many as she could find who would talk to her about 1941, she tells her story through the eyes of a 15-year-old girl who was so oblivious to what was happening when all these soldiers arrived and started forcing people out of their homes and into railway cars, that she grabbed a couple of ribbons for her hair and a hairbrush. She saw one anxious elderly father run to the refrigerator and all he could find was a piece of ham and he thrust it into the hand of a teenage boy as the Russian soldiers whisked him away. Ruta, in a recent interview, and her book is selling very well, said... When I first submitted my manuscript, it was turned down by publisher after publisher. All of them had the same comment. It's too dark. This story is too dark. There aren't one in thousands who will read such a dark story and recommend it to their friends. And she said, I kept saying, I want to tell the truth of what happened to my people when Stalin sent his troops into Ukraine, and they said, we understand. Tell that story, but at the end, you've got to give people hope. You have to give them hope. And she said, I wrote a slightly different ending. And they printed my book, and it's selling. God understands we needing hope. We need hope. God's ready to give it. Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I'm ready to do a new thing. I've chosen the very one myself. Okay, the third part was the part that Dr. Pensera's picked up with our wonderful hymns and anthems this morning. Don't look on people the way other people look on them. Look at them the way God does, Samuel. God looks at their heart. Where is the heart? reading a story recently written by Robbie Spence. 
Many of you are familiar with the famed Wharton School of Business, University of Pennsylvania. She she's, uh, works there. Uh, some say it's the finest MBA program in America. Others say, if not the best, it's certainly one of the top four or five. Robin Spence, though, was writing about her in-laws. She said, I hear people tell in-law jokes. You'll never hear me tell one, she said. I had the greatest mother and father-in-law anybody ever had. When I married my husband, I discovered I had married into the finest family I'd ever known. They were terrific people. I knew that my father-in-law had been a general in the U.S. Marine Corps in World War II. I gradually heard stories of how he was fighting with his men at Saipan when he had a leg almost completely severed. I knew that when the war was over, there were two long years of hospitalization and rehabilitation and how my mother-in-law was there with him day after day fighting through all that pain and frustration. As I asked other family members about them, they could fill in some of the details. I even decided to look up some of the men who had fought with him in World War II. I told one of the officers underneath his command, I need to know more about what he was like as a general in the Marine Corps. About all I know about World War II, she said, is what I've seen in the movies. And she said this 80-year-old man looked at her and said, Well, he looked like Rock Hudson, but he fought like John Wayne. <laughs> and she said, But what I saw was a strong man who loved his wife. He was married to her all those years, and he loved her, and she loved him. There was just no question about that. Her children knew that. He had heart trouble in his later years, and again, she nursed him through all of that difficulty. And then when she turned 80, severe dementia struck her. I was in the family, Robbie writes. I saw that happen. There finally came a time when he couldn't care for her alone, and he moved the two of them into an assisted living center. Sometimes I was over there early in the morning to see if I could help out with breakfast, and I discovered that every morning he fixed breakfast or walked her down to the dining room after he had laid out a dress for her and a pair of earrings. She always wore earrings. He knew she always wore earrings. And even when she didn't know exactly what he was doing, he put her in one of her pretty dresses, put her earrings in, and walked her down the hall to breakfast. And when they died, it seemed appropriate that their tombstones said together, We stayed the course. We finished the fight. Look at the heart a heart at a time of war, a heart at a time of peace, one's heart when there's sickness and pain, one's heart when there's joy. It's spring again, and good things are happening. That's what God looks at, the heart. Number four, is this all the sons you have, these seven? Have no more sons? I got one more. He's just a boy. He's outside taking care of the sheep and goats. Bring him in. 
And when David walked in, Samuel knew this is the one. He heard the Lord whispering in his deepest heart, this is the one. He anointed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. It would take him to fight Goliath in the battle. It would take him to fight against, and then with the Philistines, and then again against the Philistines. It would take him all the way to be king of Judah, and then of both Judah and Israel, uniting the 12 tribes, building a new capital city. David was amazing. We Gentiles believe a descendant of David was even more amazing. That God Almighty was present in our Lord Jesus in a way never before, never again in a human being. I've told you that when I was in seminary, one of my favorite courses, along with as much Bible and preaching as I could get, was a course related to preaching, and that was Finding Values in Contemporary Literature. Dr. Ronald Sleeth taught that course, husband of Natalie Sleeth, who wrote him a promise that many of you have come to like so very much. Dr. Sleeth was aware that many of his students were going to be sent to tiny rural communities across mid-America where there would be no live theater. And so he was trying to teach us how to read plays that we might never see, how to read a playwright's instructions. You know, note carefully when a word is emphasized or capitalized or it says he winces at that point or she smiles at this point. Move downstage, upstage, right, left. All those kind of things try to envision in your mind. So I've read a lot of plays that I've never, never seen staged. Tom Stoppard was one of the really fine playwrights of the last century. And some think Arcadia might have been his very best play. It's on Broadway again now. Hasn't been there in 15 years, but it's back again, Arcadia. It's a story of a house in the English sun, uh, uh, countryside. The action takes place there in a contemporary setting, but there are also flashbacks to 200 years before. 200 years before, 1809, when scientists discovered that the universe was still expanding, but slowing down. They didn't have anything nearly so sophisticated as our Hubble telescope, but with careful calibrations and theory, they had decided that after expanding for 16, 17 billion years, the universe was slowing down. One of the key lines, I think, is right near the play, where an older man says to a 13-year-old girl, she's brilliant, by the way, she's the one who's proven this theory that in fact the universe is slowing down and he says to her but what if we solve all the mysteries and find no meaning then we're alone on a deserted island but this 13 year old knows it's really about who loves you and the people whom you love and that there's one who loves us all exactly the same. The same amount. And that one makes all the difference. So what will we do 
if we solve all the mysteries and discover there's no meaning? And she smiles and said, then we dance. Yeah, we dance. 